You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. You have a copy of God's Word. Let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. As we turn our attention to worshiping through God's word. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What better season of the year to talk about that reality? The fact that through Christ alone we are saved. And the whole purpose of our lives is number 1 that we would believe the gospel. Because you can live your entire life and you can have all of these things and do all of the things in the world, but if you've not believed the gospel, then it's all for naught. So what better season of the year to talk about the most important thing in our lives, and that is the gospel. And then secondly, that we would proclaim it. Because it's not enough that we just simply know Jesus and live and die. Our entire lives are now for His purpose and His glory. You've been charged with this great mission of making disciples. You have the honor. You have God's grace and His presence with you to empower you to proclaim the gospel to every living creature so that all who hear might believe and be saved. And God has desired and seen fit that He would give us this charge and use us for His glory. What a worthy task. What an honor it is to be able to speak on behalf of Christ. And so that is the purpose of this gospel. And last week we finished chapter 11. So we saw the story of Lazarus. And at the end of chapter 11, looking last week, we began to transition away from the ministry of Jesus to the mission of Jesus. Away from the miracles and the teachings of Christ primarily, now to the the mission of Christ, namely in the crucifixion and resurrection. After all that Jesus had done, especially the raising of Jesus or the raising of Lazarus from the dead, rather, Jesus was giving an influence over the world that just couldn't be dealt with, couldn't be accepted. Too many people began to believe in Jesus, and so the people didn't know what to do with him. And so as a result, the only thing they could think of is we've got to find a way to kill him. We've got to find a way to get rid of him. Oh, that the same thing would be true here at Southwide, that Jesus was gaining so much influence here and people were believing in Jesus so much that the world didn't even know what to do about it. Uh, my, my prayer is that that would be true. But their plans to rid the world of Jesus, by the way, who posed a great threat to their kingdom, their control, their position, their plans to rid the world of Jesus represent a shift in focus. A shift away from, again, the ministry of Jesus to the mission of Jesus. 
And this time in our lives, it is so important for us to see that shift. It's a shift in the church calendar. The season of emphasis becomes the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so there is a shift in our focus that would point us to Christ. At the same time, it begs the question, doesn't it? Has that shift taken place in your life? Where all of your life's focus now points toward the mission of Christ, the cross and the resurrection. So let's turn our attention now to that in John chapter 12. If you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, beginning in verse one, the Bible says six days before the Passover, Jesus came Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and how it focuses us on what really matters. God, we are so prone to get so caught up in so many different things in our world and to lose focus. Focus on the cross and the resurrection and the gospel that we've been called to believe and to proclaim. And so I pray that in this season called Easter, that we would be reminded of what Christ has done. And more than just a mental memory, God, may it be etched upon our hearts so that those who are in this place by your spirit who do not believe would be called to believe the gospel and be saved. Those who come in the weeks ahead would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And Lord, that we would be reminded of what the Gospel means to us so that maybe our response would be similar to what we read here in this passage as believers. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Chapter 12 is so incredibly important. If you're reading through the book of John, it really represents kind of a pivot point for the gospel. It is a a transition, if you will, from the first half of John to the second half of John. Again, 
The first half being primarily about the ministry of Jesus. And the second half dealing with primarily the mission of Jesus. That is the cross and the resurrection. Chapter 11 brought the public ministry of Jesus to a close. It didn't end here, but the emphasis certainly shifted. And John gives us little clues about how everything that he has said thus far kind of gives us breadcrumbs to point us to the cross and the resurrection. It's a foreshadowing, if you will. And chapter 12 begins that preparation phase of going to the cross, beginning with the anointing of Jesus, which we just read about, and even transitioning into the triumphal entry of Jesus that we'll look at next week. But it's plain that all the attention of John's Gospel is not on the miracles of Jesus any longer, but rather on what Jesus is about to do, the greatest miracle that anyone has ever seen, His own crucifixion and resurrection. The mention of Martha and Mary here is super significant when it comes to this story and this transition. Because in the the characters of Martha and Mary and in following their storyline, we see this foreshadowing so clearly. The chapter 11 story where they're first encountered there and they're called to believe the gospel. They're, They're attending the tomb of Lazarus. It is Martha and Mary that we find here at the beginning of chapter 12 where they are preparing with Jesus for His death. And then even leaning into the end of John's Gospel that we briefly read last week, John 20, it is Martha and Mary that are at the tomb again. Right along with following this storyline of these women, we see the foreshadowing of Jesus' cross and resurrection over and over again. And the truth rises to the top that the centerpiece of the Gospel of John is the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Everything that John does kind of revolves around this moment of the cross and the resurrection. And the same thing that is true about John's Gospel is true about all of human history. The very centerpiece of human history is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the cross, there is no hope in any of anything that we face. The cross is at the very core of it. It's the centerpiece of all knowledge of God. Without the cross and the resurrection, there's no way to even know God. The cross is the centerpiece of the Gospel. Without the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we have no good news at all. It is the very centerpiece of the life of the church. Without the Gospel, there is no church. There is no mission. There is no need for us to even be here. The cross and the resurrection is the very centerpiece of the Easter celebration. You can call it all kinds of things that you want and even make bones about the name, but the end of the day, the the reason we celebrate Easter is the resurrection of Jesus. It is Resurrection Sunday. And it is the very centerpiece of every believer. Without the cross and the resurrection believer, you have absolutely no life to live. Furthermore, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is the very centerpiece of all lives, not just believers, because without Jesus, there is no hope for the unbeliever. There is no hope for the lost. The only way anybody can be saved 
is to trust in Jesus. The only way sins can be forgiven is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only way there's any hope in eternal life is through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the very centerpiece of everything. And Martha and Mary are the ones that seem to keep signaling the news that this is coming. So let's just kind of summarize the story, if you will. Six days before the Passover, which, by the way, is a huge detail, and we're going to come back to that in a few moments. Jesus comes to Bethany, where the whole resurrection of Lazarus had been had taken place. If you'll remember, back at the beginning of John chapter 11, this is where we began, in Bethany. Jesus comes to Bethany, where the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus are at. Well, this time he comes to Bethany again. He had left just after his raising Lazarus from the dead. And he went to the place called Ephraim, and there he waited. We don't know how long he waited, but he comes back and he returns to Bethany six days before the Passover. And it seems obvious that they're gathered together again at the home of Martha and Mary. We're not told that explicitly here, but Martha is the one serving dinner. She's hostessing the events, and Lazarus who, by the way, was dead, and I almost chuckle when I read this, is kind of just casually relaxed, reclined there at the table with Jesus. Like if, if you had heard the story of Jesus or of Lazarus dying, and you happen upon this dinner, you go, how did, wait, can't it, and you just lost for words, because you don't know how this guy showed up. Of course, Jesus is the one who raised him from the dead. They're eating there with Jesus, and right in the middle of dinner, Martha does something unique. She takes a pound of an expensive ointment made from pure nard, a very expensive ointment, basically. And the ointment is placed on Jesus' feet. She bows there at the feet of Jesus and she places this ointment on his feet. And then she proceeds to wipe his feet with her hair. Now, while John does not mention the container The other gospel writers tell us that it was also in a very expensive alabaster jar or flask. And what would happen is this jar was sealed kind of in a permanent way. And the only way to pour out its contents was to break the spout of the jar. So presumably, Martha, or rather Mary, bows before Jesus and she breaks the spout of the jar and she begins to wipe his feet with oil and her hair. The custom for such a jar being sealed and being something that was of great value was clear. And Mary pours out the ointment or the perfume over the feet of Jesus. Touching his feet was something that was not something that you would have done. Not only did they walk around and their feet be incredibly dirty in the day. Remember, they were wearing sandals. This is not something that a a person of any honor would do. You don't bow before the feet of someone and, and touch their feet. It's something that only slaves would do, only servants would do. The fact that Mary was willing to do this, especially at a meal, at the table, represents both her humility and her great love for Jesus. And John tells us, and I love this phrase, John tells us that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It was as if this act filled the room. This moment filled the room. It captivated all attention so that it was undeniable what was taking place. 
Now, there is no doubt that this act of of Mary pictures worship. She is there at the feet of Jesus and there's something to be said of that. Can I tell you that when we consider that the centerpiece of the gospel in the church is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, there is no more appropriate response than to fall on our face to our knees before this Savior in humble worship. There's no more appropriate response than that. When we consider the fact that the eternal, perfect Christ, the one who is without sin, the one who did not deserve to die in our place, when we consider what He's done for us in order that sinners might be forgiven, when we consider the preciousness of the blood that was spilled for us, when we consider the fact that it is that blood that restores sinners to a holy God so that we might come into His presence forgiven and set free, when we consider that it is through Christ alone that we are saved, there is no more appropriate response than to bow our face as humble sinners before a holy God who need mercy and to worship Him with all of our hearts. When we consider that the centerpiece of the Gospel is the cross and the resurrection, this is certainly an appropriate response for Mary. But there's something more to Mary's response. It was not enough that Mary is just worshiping. There's a reason why Mary's worshiping and a reason why John, why John emphasizes this event so clearly. Worship is certainly one application and you should make that application. But for what reason are we driven to worship? It's more than just general. And we know that because Jesus gives his own commentary on what Mary's doing. Verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may do it, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Leave her alone so that she may keep it. Specifically for the day of my burial, keep it as in, as in the ointment. Is she keeping the ointment? Would not seem so. Maybe, but doubtful, because every indication is that she poured out the, the ointment based on what Judas respond, how Judas responded. She should have saved it, which implies that she wasted it, that it's gone, that it cannot be used anymore for value. It's a practice of preparation that she uses the ointment for. That's the keeping that seems to be in view here. She's preparing Jesus. She's anointing Jesus. It's a common practice in Jewish culture. That's what the response was definitely all about and ultimately all about. There was a practice of anointing the body. By the way, Jesus says, whether Mary knows it or not, that he's anoint, she's anointing the body of Jesus in preparation for his burial. More than that, we see John signaling this. Right? So, notice... Don't miss this in the text. If you're reading through this, you've got to see these. John is signaling for us that not only is Mary anointing the body of Jesus, but at the very same time that Mary is preparing Jesus' body for burial, the nation is actually preparing the Passover meal. Six days before they came. But if you back up in verse 11, verse 50, or chapter 11, verse 55, listen 
Three times the Passover is mentioned here. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And then we get into chapter 12. It's mentioned again in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. You get to the end of the triumphal entry. John wants us to see it again. Verse chapter 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, super important there, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is preparation for the end. While Mary is preparing, anointing Jesus' feet, which Jesus says is for his burial, the nation is busy gathering a lamb for its death on behalf of the sins of the people. Remember that Passover was given so that the people might sacrifice the Passover lamb, that there would be an atonement for their sin, and that their sins would be forgiven. This lamb was being offered for the sins of the nation. They were chosen four days in advance. Which, by the way, was right around the time Six days, between six days and probably four days when Jesus was there at the house of Martha and Mary. They were, they would bring this lamb and they would inspect the lamb within the household of the family and then they would anoint the, the ankles and the, the feet of this lamb with oil. The very same thing that Martha is, or that rather that Mary is doing to Jesus. So six days before the Passover, Jesus is at the house of the family. Sometime around the four-day mark, He is anointed for burial by having the most precious of ointments rubbed on His feet and ankles. And not only that, but this story is positioned just before the triumphal entry where Jesus announces that His hour has come and declares it to be the end. Do you see what's happening? John is saying, It is as if Mary is saying, you all are choosing your Passover lamb, but God has already chosen His. And that's the one I'm going to bow my life before. Jesus is the great Passover lamb. I don't know if that's Mary's intent, but it certainly is Jesus' intent and John's intent. So get this. Jesus Christ is God's chosen Passover lamb offered up for the sins of the world. This is what we see in Mary's sacrifice of worship. It is the echo of John 1. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see in Mary what is a right response. And we, like Mary, need to receive Jesus as our great Passover Lamb. The one who is without spot or blemish because Jesus was was without sin. The only one who is righteous. We must receive Jesus as the chosen of God. The only Passover Lamb able to ultimately save because the blood of bulls and goats was insufficient. Christ alone is sufficient. We must receive Jesus as the one delivered up for our substitute. The one who died in our place and could ultimately pay the price. 
We, we need to see Jesus as the one who is crucified for the atonement of our sin. The one once and for all who is able to bring us into right relationship with God and to forgive our sins. And so now that we've seen Jesus as the Passover over lamb, then Mary's response makes more sense. And the contrast between Mary's response and Judas' response can be understood. The question of the text should be, will you be Mary or will you be Judas? Will you respond as Mary does or will you respond as Judas does? You see, Judas objects to Mary's response based on, by the way, a facade of goodwill and religious duty. Don't miss that. On the surface, Judas says, we could have sold that. We could have helped the poor, Jesus. You see, Jesus knew his heart. Because the real treasure of Judas' heart was the money. Judas was a thief. Notice the contrast between he and Mary. Judas says we could have sold that. Mary pours it all out at the feet of Jesus. And John tells us that all he was doing was patting his pockets anyway. He valued the ointment more than he valued Jesus. You go on, you see it even more in the contrast between the chief priest and those that believed. They valued their position and their authority and their kingdom more than they valued Jesus and His mission and His salvation. So they desired to kill Him. There is a right response to Jesus being the Passover Lamb and there is a wrong response to Jesus being the Passover Lamb. So what is the right response? How is it that you and I see Jesus, the forgiveness that He offers, and respond rightly to Him being the Passover Lamb? Well, there are three things that we see in the response of Mary that you need to notice here in the passage this morning. If Jesus really is the Passover Lamb, chosen of God to take away the sins of the world, then we must humble ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Humble yourself at the feet of Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says, They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Martha served. There is this servant response in the heart of Mary, or in the heart of Martha. That comes to a, a head, comes to a real realization in the act of Mary as she bows at the feet of Jesus and serves at his feet. And we spend a lot of time condemning Martha's responses, her servant responses, her busyness and Mary's worship. But at the end of the day, both of them really evidence a singular response. They're all wanting to serve Jesus, they humble themselves at his feet. That's where John begins his response here. The, the beginning of any response, any right response to the gospel is a response of humility, of servanthood, because the person who understands 
who they are before holy God, there is no other place than bowing at the feet of Christ for mercy. Do you remember when John the Baptist announced the coming of Jesus? What did he say? Everyone around him was propping him up. But John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Friends, can I tell you that we often begin at the gospel with a real sense of me. We come to the gospel with demands for ourselves. We come to the gospel with an inflated sense of who we are. And listen, you cannot come to Jesus rightly if it begins with you. No, the the gospel begins with God. The gospel begins with the reality that there is nothing good in me, nothing deserving in me, and only God is good and only God is worthy. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus and and he said, what must I do, good teacher, to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, there's no one good but God. He was correcting this sense of, of entitlement, this sense of worth, this sense of value that comes in self-righteousness, that comes in good deeds. And the reality is, if we come to Jesus in our pride, we do not come to Him at all. It is God and God alone. We must lay down our pride. You see that pride in Judas, don't you? We could have sold this Jesus, this religious shell that he puts up in order to hide the inward sinfulness of his heart. You you see the pride in the chief priests. They rather have their position and their authority and, and instead they sacrifice salvation. Our pride. First Peter says that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so He tells us to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. James 4, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Both of those are exhortations to the believer. And it is certainly true that believers must humble themselves before the Lord. But there are warnings over and over and over and over again in Scripture that that warn us, that warn unbelievers about their pride. That on the one hand it seems right, and in the other way it leads to destruction. When we have this self-righteous, self-domineering kind of pride, The Bible teaches that that's the very thing that leads to destruction. And we know the end of Judas, don't we? We know that despite every attempt that he had uh, to thwart the plan of Christ and to keep what was his, what ended up happening, he ended up committing suicide at the end of his life because he realized what he had done and he refused to repent. The Gospel just began to spread more and more. We know the end of the chief priests, don't we? We know that although they tried to resist the gospel at every turn, the gospel just continued to spread through a humble people, through believers who seemed, these these are just common men. God loves humility. And so we are told to humble ourselves at the feet of Jesus, even as Mary did. Lay down your pride. 
Lay down your objections. Lay down your rebellion. All of your self-righteousness and simply bow before the feet of Christ. Secondly, not only do we bow before in humility, but we exchange every treasure of our hearts for the supreme worth of Jesus. Exchange every treasure of your heart for the supreme worth of Christ. There is a, an immediate posture that, that says, I, I come to Christ and I have nothing to offer. And only things to gain in Him. I, I don't have anything else. There's nothing in me good. But there is an immediate reaction to that that says, Jesus, You have everything. So every treasure of mine, I lay down. This is why Martha takes this expensive ointment, which no, I mean, rather Mary, takes this expensive ointment that no doubt she had been saving. It was on a shelf somewhere. She had been saving it for a special occasion or maybe she was holding on to it like real estate, hoping the value would go up. I don't know. She was holding on to it. But all of a sudden, the one who raised her brother from the dead, all of a sudden, the, the one that is the Savior of the world is before her. And all of a sudden, listen, no other treasure compared to the worth of Christ. That's what happens. That's what happens when someone comes to know Christ. And she breaks off the top. And she bows before Christ. And she pours it out and wipes her feet with his hair. Wipes his feet with her hair. She's, she's humbled before Him because He's now her greatest treasure. Everything that she loves is now found in Christ. By the way, we even hear it in the plea of the words of Jesus, don't we? Verse 8 says, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have Me. Even if Judas' complaint was legitimate, think about this. Even if Judas' complaint was legitimate, Jesus, we could have sold this and got some money and done some ministry with it. Watch this. It was more important that Martha loved Jesus before she loved even ministry. So convicting, isn't it? Because often the glaring inconsistencies in our lives are not moral failures, but worship problems. The glaring inconsistencies in the lives of Christians are often idolatry. Ways where we just misplace our affections and we call them good things. And maybe they are in and of themselves, but we make gods out of them. And we begin to worship them. And it's even possible here in this text to make a God out of serving the poor. Jesus says, no, love me. You're always going to have the poor with you. There's always going to be time for ministry. There's always going to be another need to meet. But I will not always be here with you. Worship me. The primacy of worship in the heart of the believer when we realize that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Everything else flows out of that. 
Judas, you can't even serve the poor without loving me first. And obviously Judas didn't. This is the same story again with the rich young ruler. Jesus, I've been moral. I've met every commandment requirement that you put on me. And Jesus says, oh no. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now that commandment's not in Scripture. You see, Jesus knew the idol of his heart. The same idol that was Judas' idol. And friend, I venture to say that there are idols that plague each and every one of us this morning that we wrestle with and try to decide whether we're going to pour them out at the feet of Jesus or not and try to decide whether the worth of Jesus is superior to the worth of that thing that we so cherish. And sadly, we go on and on and on and live as if that thing is God. And we rarely, we rarely deal with our own idolatry. This can be true in our time, the way that we spend our time. Whether we give our time to the Lord or make excuses about busyness and all kinds of other things. This can be true in our possessions. But you see, if if we've come to believe that Jesus is the Passover lamb, we're forced to ask this question. What ointment is not worth pouring out for the sake of one who is supremely and infinitely worthy? I, I hope that you hear the answer to the question built in. There is nothing, there is no sacrifice too big that it doesn't equate to the worth of Christ and His worth be supremely more. I could lose everything for the sake of Christ. Isn't this what Paul said? I've considered everything lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is that your life statement today? Everything I am belongs to Christ. When He is the Passover Lamb, that can be true because there's no other substance other than His blood that can be spilled for your redemption. And so you trust Him. We must, we must exchange every treasure of our hearts for the supreme worth of Christ. Third, when we're exchanging treasures, there is this built-in reality that We do treasure sin. We do treasure disobedience by nature. And this is why the gospel must be received. We must, number three, receive Jesus as God's chosen Passover lamb by faith. Not by works. Not by anything that we can do. We must turn and receive him. And this is the crazy thing about what's happening. Notice this. No matter how many attempts that the religious leaders or anybody else make to derail the plan of Jesus, it only makes it go further. (laughs) It only grows more. Verse 10. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. Here's what's happening. Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God. They've debunked those claims, or at least tried to. Now they get to this point, and He just raised somebody from the dead. I can't argue with that anymore. So what do you do? We've got to get rid of Him. 
That process continues when they go after Jesus and they try to put him to death. At the end of the day, every step was ordered by God. It wouldn't have mattered at the end of the day what they did. Why? Because Jesus is Savior. And the reason they want to get rid of them, rid of him is because people are believing. They're believing. This is the same purpose that John has had from the beginning. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's the whole point of this gospel. We see over and over, you must believe, you must believe, you must believe. The call of Scripture is to believe the gospel. To believe is to receive by faith, not by works. It's something that we just trust in. That we submit to. At the end of the day, there's nothing good in me that will that will equate to salvation from God. Only through faith in Jesus Christ as God's chosen Passover lamb. There was blood that was spilled for us and it is the only blood that can bring salvation. We receive Him by faith. What are we believing in? Well, if you're reading John 11 and John 12, certainly would be believing in His sovereign power. But not only death has any authority over Jesus, not even death. That Jesus is sovereign over all things, which also emphasizes who He is. Not just what He is. Namely, that He is the Son of the living God. That He is God in human flesh. Had a conversation just this week. Someone believing a lot of the things about the Gospel but not that Jesus is God. Friend, we must believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God. You must confess the deity of Christ. Without Him being God, there's no way He can save. Without Him being God, He's not sovereign. He has no power. At the end of the day, He's just another man, but the Bible teaches that He is God. You must believe that. You must believe that He has the ability to raise the dead. The death has no power over Jesus. Not only can He raise a man, but that He Himself was raised from the dead and that even beyond that, He can conquer eternal death. Namely, that He can cause those who are spiritually dead to be alive again in Him through the Gospel. He must trust in His own death and resurrection. It wasn't just a made-up story, but it's true. And you must trust that His life is the only provision through which you can be saved. He's the Passover Lamb. The only question that remains is what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? And there's so much confusion over this issue. Hear me this morning. What it means to believe is that we like Mary come in humble surrender to the only one who can save us. And we exchange our treasure, our worth, the things that we value for Jesus. It means that I don't want sin anymore. Sin condemns me. I, I turn to Christ. I, I don't want to run my I don't want authority over my life. I, I submit to the authority of Jesus. Everything I, I have, I, I just the only response I have as a sinner is to fall down before His feet and plead for mercy. 
This is what it means to believe the gospel. The sad part is, is that many people believe facts about the gospel. Many people believe in their tradition. Many people believe in their good works. And at the end of the day, it's Christ alone that saves. We must submit to Christ. Can I ask you, have you ever believed the gospel? With every head bowed and every eye closed, Jesus Christ offered for your sins and mine on the cross is the message of the gospel. The fact that he was raised to life again means that today he has defeated death and your death can come to an end in Christ. If you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. So in just a few moments, we're going to stand in this place. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. We want to invite you to come. Respond to the plea of Christ and believe the gospel today and be saved. Turn from sin. Turn from all of your rebellion against God and trust in Christ today. The Bible says that if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, repenting of your sin and believing upon Christ, today you will be saved. Would you do that in a few moments when we stand right where you're standing? Step out of that place. Walk down this aisle. Today, Pastor, I want to be saved. Will you help me? And I'll help you. I'll lead you to Jesus. And Jesus will save you if you'll come today. Others of you in this room, you're struggling with your jar. You've been keeping it to yourself. Sealed tightly. Treasuring it. And Jesus says, Come. Bow before my feet. Lay down your treasure. And find worth. Find treasure. Find value. As above all else. Be satisfied forevermore in Christ. Today. Some of you need to lay your treasure down. So in just a few moments, I want to invite you to come. This altar will be open. You come and bow before Jesus. Confess it to Him today. And ask Him to renew renew your heart for Him. All across this room, would you stand with me? Lord, we pray that You would renew in us a sense of worship that is built upon You, our Passover Lamb, who shed Your precious priceless blood for us. May we be willing everything that we are to give everything to you today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning. The altar is open. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.